Good morning, everybody. I'm so sorry about the technical glitch that's got us at the start, but I'll restart my opening. My name is Kalpana Vignesa, and I'm a senior research fellow at the Institute of Policy Studies. It is with great pleasure and anticipation that I open Singapore Perspectives 2024. For the first time ever, Singapore Perspectives will focus on the topic of youth. Defined as a segment of our population between 18 and 35 years of age. It is a topic that in one sense is easy to motivate fondness for. After all, we have all been young once. But historically, talk of youth has always been a little contentious. I'm sure even the pioneers amongst us remember their elders saying, back in my day, life was tough and we managed, or kids these days have it so easy. It's a safe bet that they also thought to themselves, but this doesn't feel easy, or I want to do things differently in response. It is precisely in one's youth that one begins to shoulder more responsibilities and make major life decisions. Youth begin to dream their own dreams more and more during what is an already challenging period that marks the transition from the relatively stable school environment into the workplace and beyond. Youth are also now coming of age amidst rapid transformation and upheaval. For example, the rise of the gig economy, COVID-19, developments in technology like artificial intelligence and a super aging society. There are also following a different timeline for transitioning into the more traditional markers of adulthood, including taking longer to complete formal education, to settle into stable employment and to transition from singlehood to marriage. So as the organizing team, we asked ourselves if we could craft a conference where we could all come together, regardless of our age, suspend preconceived notions of what is the right way to be young. To this end, we have prepared for you a full slate of relevant panels across online and in-person conference days with speakers who will consider all manner of issues and questions pertaining to Singapore's youth. We start our online day with panel one, which will surface research into the youth of today. This will be followed by panel two that looks at the somewhat rough terrain ahead. These first two panels give us the opportunity to all get on the same page about what we know about being young today. The remaining panels across the two conference days then go on to draw out the deeply interwoven topics that the research highlights are of key importance to young people. Panel three, our final panel of today, will be on the centrality of mental well-being. And when we meet in person next week, we will explore three more panels on the topics of work, family and politics as they relate to young people in Singapore. We hope you enjoy the discussions and come away with new ideas or novel perspectives on all ones. I thank you for joining us and look forward to saying hello to you in person on the 29th. Until then, and without further ado, let me hand over to my colleague, Dr. Dilam Wevala Arachi, who will shepherd us through our first exchange on what is being young like today. Dilam. A very good morning to everyone. I'd like to extend a warm welcome to our panelists and audience and thank everyone for attending the first online session of Single Perspectives 2024 on youth. My name is Dilum Bevla Arachi and I am a research fellow at the Institute of Policy Studies. This first panel is entitled, What is Being Young Like Today? Panel one presents the latest findings from two nationwide studies done on youth namely the National Youth Survey and Youth Steps. 
Drawing on these findings, the speakers will share their views on what growing up is like for today's youth. I'm sure that we, Panel 1 speakers, and all of you joining online will have a meaningful discussion and explore key themes pertaining to youth today. Before I introduce our esteemed panelists, please allow me to go over some housekeeping matters. Please note that the Singapore Perspectives Conference is open for media coverage. At any time during the session, please feel free to type in your questions in the question and answer panel on the right-hand side of the screen. We invite everyone to contribute to the discussion in a respectful and safe manner and focus on the issues at hand. IPS reserves the right to act in a way that ensures that this is always the case in all of our chat or Q&A functions throughout the conference. With that, allow me to introduce our speakers. We have three distinguished speakers this morning. First in our lineup is Mr. Tan Lin Tech, Senior Director for Youth in the Ministry of Culture, Community and Youth, and concurrently Deputy Chief Executive of the National Youth Council. Prior to his roles at MCCY and NYC, Lintech has served stints in the Ministry of Trade and Industry, Ministry of Home Affairs, Ministry of Manpower, and the Ministry of Education. Next up, we have Associate Professor Vincent Chua from the Department of Sociology and Anthropology at the National University of Singapore. At NUS, he teaches modules such as Social Inequalities, Social Capital, and Data Analysis in Social Research. His research interests are in social stratification, with a focus on how social networks have extended durable inequalities in labour markets, education, schools, neighbourhoods, and along categorical lines such as gender, race, and class. Last but not least, we have Assistant Professor Kwan Jin Yao from the College of Education and Human Development, Department of Human Development and Family Sciences at the University of Delaware. He is also a research fellow with the Majority Trust, a philanthropic organization in Singapore. His research focuses on the development of adolescents, youth, and young adults in underserved communities. Their full biographies are available on the conference website. Each panelist will speak for 15 minutes each, which will be followed by a 45-minute question and answer session. All right, Lintech, would you like to begin? Uh, thanks very much, Dylan. Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, very happy to be with you here today, this morning. Uh, my name is Lintek, as uh, Dylan had introduced. I'm from the National Youth Council, as well as the Ministry of Culture, Community and Youth. And as the names suggest, uh, we work together with a whole of government agencies, as well as partners from the private sector, from the people sector on youth-related issues. Uh, I like to think that I was invited to speak about this because I'm still young and youthful, but I don't think that's the case, but it is what it is. Uh, so yeah, can I have my slides, please? Okay, uh, so before I start, I thought I just want to reassure everyone that uh, you're not here for an astronomy class, you're in the correct um, uh, place. Uh, we are here to talk about youth. Uh, but the title of my, my short sharing is really a throwback to this book called uh, Men Are From Mars and Women Are From Venus. Uh, which really talks about the difference between the two sexes and how they uh, they look at things, how they deal with relationships. So I thought it was an appropriate title uh, because today when we look at youth, we often think of them as different, um, as uh, a different generation with very different uh, views and ideas. And I thought uh, what I would do today is to really share from 20,000 feet 
what a youth is like today. Um, and you can make your own conclusions on how different or how similar youths are compared to yourself if you are not no longer a youth or to the people around you. So before I jump into it, I thought it's important uh, to get some definitions. Uh, so if you just humor me, because I know we are not face-to-face uh, -face with each other, um, but uh, I have a couple of questions before we jump into the content. Uh, if you just think very hard about your answer, uh, and I'm sure I can get your vibes. Huh? So if you look at the, the first question I have, uh, the five pictures there, uh, which of these pictures uh, do you think depicts a youth? So I'll just pause for, for three awkward Zoom seconds for you to, to think about your answer. Okay, thanks. I, I, I really felt it. I know all of you all chose E, but unfortunately, that's the wrong answer. So in, when I look at the picture there, a youth is BCD. So for the National Youth Council and MCCY, we define a youth as someone who is between the age of 15 to 35. So uh, A there is someone attending the NE show, uh, so it's primary five, so sorry, that's not a youth. B, look, secondary school-ish, so yes, that's a youth. Uh, C, the person is taking a 0 0.5, so that's definitely a youth. Uh, and D, you will see that um, it is a family. Uh, the child looks about two to three years old, three to four years old, so probably a youth, 34, 35-ish type of age. Uh, e is, uh, yeah, okay, so let's not talk about that. So in Singapore, we define youth as 15 to 35. And I wanted to start with that uh, uh, because it's important to recognize that when we talk about youth, we are actually not really talking about a very homogeneous entity. You can imagine that a 15-year-old, the concerns, the issues that a 15-year-old faces, is concerned about, will be very different from a 35-year-old working parent. Uh, so when we think about use, we talk about use, it's important to keep that frame in mind um, that actually we're talking about different age groups and we're talking about people who might be at very different life stages. Uh, the second question uh, that I wanted to, to have is uh, what percentage of our resident population do you think our use make up? So again, I'll just pause for three seconds for you to, to guess. Okay, so actually this is a simple PSLE math question. Huh? So if you if you take use as 15 to 35, 20, which is two decades, our our life expectancy is about 80 plus. So it's about one quarter. Lah. So actually use make up about 25% of our resident population. And I thought it's important to highlight that as well, because actually in comparison to many other countries, the uh, proportion of use in uh, Singapore is relatively smaller. So last year, I attended uh, a conference uh, in, in London with amongst the Commonwealth countries. And I listened with envy as many of these countries talk about how youth were 60-70% of their population. Uh, but in Singapore, it's 25%. Even if you look at our neighboring countries like Indonesia, you're looking at about 50%. So our resident population is much more diverse in terms of age. And that will have an impact on some of the things that we think about and, and what we do. So use 15 to 35 based on the NYC, National Youth Council, MCCY type of definition, approximately about a million of them making up about 25% of our population. You'll see that the demographic split in terms of uh, male and female is quite, quite even. Um, the, the ethnicity as well, uh, nothing very stark or nothing very uh, different from our general population. One of the questions that I've been asked since I joined NYC and, and Kalpana did talk about this at the start is really, actually, is it true that our youths are soft? Whether it's the strawberry generation, you hear things like uh, Tang Ping and things like that. Um, but 
my response is uh, that actually they we need to appreciate that our youth grow up in a very very different world. Uh, firstly, and 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 all of us can still remember this. Uh, many of them are coming of age at a time when the pandemic hit us. Uh, we is difficult for many of us, but for youth uh, who uh, grow who is still growing up, who is still uh, building up their social networks and connections, uh, being put at home uh, or having to stay at home uh, has a very different type of impact. And you must remember that this is at a time when they are still growing up and still maturing uh, and the impact is quite different. Uh, we li also live in a very different world uh, where the economy changes much more quickly, uh, changing business models and technologies that are disrupting the way that we do our work, the way that we live, the way that we play. Uh, it's also a hyper-connected world. The flow of information is really, really very different. In the past, when I was growing up, if I needed information, I had to go to the library or you have to look at your encyclopedia. But now it's instantaneous, right? You just Google and you probably can find an answer whether it's right or wrong. Um, and we are, and as a country also, we are living in a, in a time when we have an aging workforce and an aging population. We often joke that our youth are going to become an endangered species soon. Uh, but actually, it's not that much of a joke. Like the proportion is really going down. Uh, but that is the type of uh, world that our youth are growing up in. And it's important to think about how these forces or these things that are happening around us will shape the youth uh, today and how this will create youth who have perhaps a different outlook or a different uh, demeanor compared to people of the previous generations. So, so now I'll jump into uh, what is like being youth today based on, on what we see. But just to assure you, uh, in case you're wondering why you need to listen to me since I'm not a youth and, and why you think that uh, I know youth, uh, just to sell some koyo. So at NYC and MCCY, we broadly categorize the, the, the things that we do in the youth space into three buckets. Be heard, be empowered, be the change. So being heard is really about trying to hear youth and understanding what their concerns, their issues are. Also for youth to hear each other and to hear from the government on what some of the things we are thinking about, why we do things a certain way, to help engender more meaningful conversations, which will allow us to be able to work more closely together in partnership. Be Empowered is really about preparing the youth for the future, uh, to be future ready. And Be The Change is really uh, talking about how the youth today uh, can take action and be the change that they want to see in the world. So as part of what we do under the Be Heard bucket, uh, one of the things we do is uh, we conduct this uh, survey called the National Youth Survey, which is really sort of uh, a census of sorts across the youth population to understand the different issues, concerns of the time. Uh, we do this regularly. We also have pulse surveys, uh, regular polls to be able to understand uh, the evolving youth sentiments, some of which do change fairly quickly. And the next few slides, what I'll share in terms of our youth today, uh, is taken from the National Youth Survey as well as some of the pulse uh, surveys and, and, and polls that we have done. So, so hopefully that gives you a flavor of, of the, the, the other things that I will share over the next few slides to understand where they are coming from. So firstly, in terms of education, uh, not surprisingly, the youth compared to previous generations, as well as to many parts of the world, in Singapore, our youth are relatively well-educated. Uh, you will see that uh, more than 300,000 of these youth now 25 to 34, because we're talking about higher education, would have a university degree, which is really much, almost double from that two decades ago. Uh, in terms of secondary school qualification, those who stop at secondary school qualification, actually also much smaller population, which means that many of our youths uh, have gone up uh, into tertiary education, higher education uh, as they grow up. 
Of course, this is a uh, we see this as a positive trend. It means that we have a good foundation to work on. Our youth uh, have the basic skills that they need in order to be able to find a job to do well in the world. And this is something that we should really not take for granted uh, because it is not the same in many other countries and it's something that uh, is really one of our strengths. In terms of employment, uh, you will see actually that as a percentage of the labor force, the number of youths in our labor force has declined over the years. Uh, this, of course, is a reflection of our demographics. Uh, but it's important to, to keep that in mind because as you as I mentioned earlier, this is not the same in many other countries. So if you imagine a country where 60% of the population are youths, uh, when the youths enter the labor force, they become the majority and they are able to shape and define the working culture and the working needs of the time. Uh, but in Singapore, when youths join the labor force, they are, I mean, they are not a minority, they are probably just evenly spread out among the different age segments, uh, which means that uh, things like being able to work across generations, intergeneration issues, tensions, conflicts, it's important to be able to address them and be able to work across uh, different generations of people within the labor force. So that's something that you would uh, would. of a job as uh, as you all can imagine has become much more important when you ask the youth today how important it is uh, to find meaning in your job is higher than in pre uh, previous generations uh, the good thing also is that our youth uh, given the different changes they recognize the need to upskill and constantly reskill or, or what we call lifelong learning and seven in ten actually have plans to upskill or reskill in the next couple of years which is actually quite heartening because it shows that they recognize the shifts and the change that are happening in the global economy and the need to stay relevant. In terms of mental well-being, and this is one of the specific topics uh, that we have uh, uh, across the SG Perspectives uh, sessions, uh, youth mental well-being has improved from the depths of the pandemic. So we can imagine that the pandemic really hit youth hard in terms of mental well-being. Um, he has recovered over the past few years, um, but he has not reached the levels that uh, it was at pre-pandemic. Uh, so we are at about 40% of youth who said very good or good in terms of their mental well-being, uh, which is like the, the, I mean, the good thing is that it has been an improvement over the past few years. Uh, you will also see there, uh, based on our survey, some of the stressors that youth face. And I thought it was important to put it into segments because, again, different youth, because you covered 15 to 35, uh, will face different stressors in life. Uh, as you get older, of course, things like finances, your job will come in. Uh, earlier, yeah, not surprisingly, is things like studies, etc., uh, which will make the biggest impact in terms of uh, mental well-being. Uh, this is an area that uh, there's a lot of focus, including across the whole of government, uh, in order to be able to help uh, youth address their, their mental well-being and to enhance their mental well-being. In terms of values and attitude, uh, youths are generally more liberal than the general population in terms of views on marriage, on divorce, uh, sex before marriage, etc. Uh, I think this is the the general, uh, I don't know if you call it stereotype, the general view people will have of youth. Uh, but what is interesting is that if we think about uh, values and attitude, you will see that uh, priority for our youth, uh, and it, it essentially says that they are very Singaporean, right? Because at the end of the day, their main concern is still on bread and butter issues. Uh, so often we think of youths who are very, very driven, very idealistic, very uh, thinking about uh, all these wonderful things. But actually at the end of the day for our youth, in terms of their values and attitude, it still boils down very largely 
to things like cost of living, jobs and economy, uh, very bread and butter type of issues. So they still think that this is important and these are things that really form what is the basic needs or the basic priorities in life. Uh, in terms of marriage and parenthood, uh, youths are getting married later. So I think this is something that many of you would be familiar with. And views on marriage and parenthood are also shifting. Uh, so essentially, I would summarize this as saying that you still want to get married. They still want to have children. Uh, but if you ask them whether it's a priority, uh, it's starting to go down the ladder. So things like uh, financial stability, having your own home, these are having higher priority. Uh, in all, uh, in terms of their life uh, expectations, uh, marriage is and parenthood is still there. They still do want to get married, still want to have children, uh, but it is going down. And I think that reflects itself in the age of marriage, uh, as well as uh, youth recognizing that actually it is no longer essential for, uh, in their view, that it is no longer essential for a fulfilling life. Uh, this is really the last slide uh, that I have in terms of sharing about what our youth look like today. I think this is a slide that always heartens me that when we talk about youths, we, whatever we have of them, uh, what is interesting is that the youths today are willing to contribute to society in many different ways and to remain engaged uh, civically. Uh, so this is important because, uh, as I mentioned, one of the things that we really believe in is that our youths can be the change that they want to see in society. Uh, we see that over one in two youths remain confident uh, that they are prepared for the future and, and two in five of them also continue to see that there are opportunities. Uh, four in five, which is quite significant, they, of, of our youth who have participated in at least one form of civic activity uh, in 2022. Uh, so civic activity will be things like um, engaging with a, a politician, engaging with the government, um, contributing back to society in a project. Uh, so up, about 80% of our youth have done that uh, in 2022. Uh, so it really shows, I think, the desire of youth to be engaged and to want to contribute back to society. So I just have two more slides, uh, not content slides, uh, but because this was the first uh, panel and actually I'm the first speaker in the first panel and I asked myself, actually, what message do I hope that you will take away with you at the end of the day after I finish my 15 minutes uh, 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 selling, right? Uh, so I hope that you... Uh, two messages will stay with you. So if you are a youth or if you are someone who work with youth, I hope that you go away with a sense of hope. Uh, and with a sense of hope because actually there are challenges. We live in difficult times. The pandemic was difficult. But we are starting from a very good base. Uh, our, our youth are very well educated. They want to contribute back to society. There's a desire to do so. They want to engage. They want to contribute. And actually that is something that we should build on. Uh, is something that we should see as a strength and we should use and leverage this strength in order to be able to address uh, many of the challenges that we see today uh, in the world in Singapore. So I hope that we all go away with a sense of hope that actually um, uh, youth will indeed uh, be able to rewrite the next chapter of Singapore's um, history or Singapore's future. So, so for the youth and for those who work with youth, I hope you will go away with a sense of hope uh, that we are building on a very high base uh, and stand, really standing on the shoulders of giants. For those who may have a different view of youth, I, I end with this. Uh, I come from a, a home of Harry Potter fans, so I have to end with a Harry Potter slide. Uh, it's a requirement in all my presentations. Um, but I hope we also appreciate, and sometimes you hear things like, ah, youth are like that one, nah, nowadays the youth are like that, very strawberry one. I hope that we go away remembering that Actually, growing up was never that easy. Um, we romanticized the time that we were young and it was exciting and we had fun. But actually, it was difficult. 
And I hope we approach our youth, we support our youth with some empathy and with uh, a great deal of support as well. Uh, with that, I'm, I, my time is up. So thank you once again for, for, for joining us, all of us today. And if you have any questions, happy to address them later on. Thank you. Thank you, Lintech, for sharing a broad overview of youths today. It was great to hear about youth values, attitudes, and aspirations. Uh, so let's pass the time now to Vincent, who will talk about youth from a different perspective. Vincent, please. Hi, thanks. Um, can you hear me? Yep. Okay. Um, so my name is Vincent, uh, trained as a sociologist uh, now at NUS. Uh, very happy to be here and thank you for uh, to IPS uh, for inviting me um, to Dilem for chairing, uh, to my panelists, uh, Lin Tech and uh, Jin Yao. Uh, thank you for joining me. And of course, to the audience, thank you for calling in. Um, could I have my slides? Okay. Now, my presentation today uh, focuses on the well-being of uh, youth, uh, the well-being of young adults. And I want to discuss uh, data from Youth Steps, uh, which is a six-wave uh, panel data that follows respondents uh, over a period of six years uh, from 2017 uh, to 2022. Next slide. Now, a recent survey by MOH, uh, Ministry of Health, uh, actually shows that poor mental health has increased uh, over time, right? So 17%, uh, sorry, 14% in 2020, and uh, in 2022, it became 17%. Uh, what is most striking with this data is that uh, the, the the increase is most salient amongst younger adults, uh, those between the ages of 18 to 29, right? So it is young people, emerging adults uh, in particular, uh, who have become most vulnerable in terms of their well-being. Next. So I suppose my question... Uh, to start off uh, is, is, is a rather straightforward one. And the question is really this, uh, what are the factors that influence youth well-being? Now we know from research that aging is a factor, right? Uh, to put it plainly, uh, as people age, they get more and more miserable, right? at least up to a point. Uh, research from all over the world, in fact, shows this to be the case. The next slide. Now this is uh, this is data from uh, from a global sample, right? So for uh, uh, data from all over the world, uh, you can see the x-axis you have age, and on the y-axis you have life satisfaction. Uh, life uh, young people would be on the left hand side uh, on on the on the on the age axis, and you can see that life satisfaction goes down with age, right? Um, so starting from twenty, it goes down all the way, and it sort of bottoms out when they are about fifty. And then uh, after 50, thankfully, it goes up again. Now, next slide. Uh, this trend actually is quite consistent across countries. right? So if you look at uh, different societies, US, UK, China, Latin America, Europe, uh, in this case, Germany and Russia, uh, the bottom is there about 45 to 50 years of age, uh, sometimes later. Uh, but eventually, it all sort of goes up uh, in the later half of life. So you can think about the life course as having two major sections, uh, an earlier part and their life satisfaction go going down. And then when it reaches around 50, thereabout, uh, it then goes up after that. Next slide. So to put it uh, plainly, 
for young people is going to be bad anyway, right? Uh, the question that we really want to ask is this, how do we make a bad situation less bad uh, in a sense? And I suggest that the answer is found in two time-related factors, uh, both having to do with the life course. Uh, the first factor is that of adulthood transitions, moving from school to work, you know, getting more education, uh, forming a family and so on. And the other life course factor is uh, the role of events, right? So in this case, for example, uh, the rise of COVID-19. Next slide. Now, um, truth be told, uh, adulting can be challenging. Uh, the uncertainty, adapting to, to change, adapting to challenges and so on, uh, not always understanding the rules, trying again and so on, responsibilities going up. Now, add to that, you have events, external shocks, for example, global events, economic recession, trade wars, uh, which, by the way, was already present before COVID-19. Okay. Now, when COVID-19 came in uh, year 2020, that added a new layer of crisis, and which, of course, then begs another question, which is how has COVID-19 shaped transitions into adulthood to affect the mental health of different segments of young people? Right, so that's the question I want to explore today uh, in my presentation. Uh, next slide. Now, this is the model that I have in mind. You have variables on the left-hand side, and then you have the outcome, which is life satisfaction on the right-hand side. Now, on the, life hand, on the left-hand side, you have adulthood transitions, so moving from uh, school to work, for example. And then you have educational mobility, transition into marriage, uh, the effect of aging, and of course, the effect of COVID-19. And the question I want to ask is this, uh, how do these factors on the left-hand side combine to affect the outcomes on the right-hand side? Okay, uh, so next slide. Now, the advantage of uh, panel data is that we are able to follow respondents uh, over time, in this case, uh, over six years. So starting from 2017 to 2022. And then, um, What's really valuable is that it is the same person we are following over time. And because it is the same person and not a different uh, date, uh, uh, sample, uh, we actually are able to track changes in their lives and then to map it onto changes in their outcomes. Right. So that's that's one of the, the, the strengths of uh, panel data. Um, in wave one, you have respondents aged between 17 to 24. And then by the time they are in 2022, which is wave six, uh, they would have been 22 to 29. Okay, so um, the lower bound in age is 17 and the upper bound in age is 29 uh, across the six years. Okay, next slide. Now we started in wave one with about 4,000 respondents and by wave six, we are left with 2,600 respondents. So this is about uh, translated, roughly speaking, 10% attrition every year. Uh, which for a panel uh, data set is considered uh, very good. All right, so starting out with 4,000 and then ending up six years later in 2006. Now, um, you see over time, uh, the green bars, right? Uh, it's becoming less and less. So full-time student becoming less and less and full-time worker becoming more and more. So this tells us that uh, the respondents are transitioning out of school and into the workplace. Uh, into full-time jobs. Next slide. Now, this is the outcome variable. So life satisfaction uh, measured over five uh, items. 
And then for each of the items, you have seven, it's a Likert scale of uh, seven. So five times seven, 35. The lower bound is five, the upper bound is uh, 35. Next slide. Now the black line here is the mean. So what is happening here is that you see starting out in 2017, life satisfaction goes down, right? It goes down, 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 all the way to, uh, to the first year of COVID-19, which is 2020. And then after that, 21 and 22, there's a very slight uptick in life satisfaction of the young, uh, but never going up to the levels of uh, 2017. Right? So it goes down towards the pandemic. And then after the pandemic, in the second and third year, it sort of goes up slightly, but never going up back to uh, 2017. Next slide. Now, these are the independent variables. So what I want to emphasize here is the moving between statuses. Right, So the transitions that we are trying to estimate the effects on. So for example, transitioning from, from school to, to work. Right. Uh, is, is, is one possibility. And you have different kinds of employment statuses that we are looking at, unemployment, full-time employed, part-time employed, student, national service, and homemaker. Right? So that's for the employment status. And then for educational mobility, you have low, middle, and high. Uh, low and middle would be non-degree holders, and high would be degree holder. Okay. And then, uh, of course, last but not least, transition into marriage, you have single and transitioning into marriage. Okay, uh, next slide. Uh, we also measure COVID-19 and we do so in two ways, right? So the first way is to think of COVID-19 in terms of years, right? So the COVID-19 years would be 2021, 20, 22, and the pre-COVID years would be 17, 18, and 19, right? So thinking about uh, COVID-19 in terms of the years by which uh, COVID-19 has or has not occurred. Uh, we also measure COVID-19 in terms of a subjective experience, and here the question that captures it would be, to what extent has COVID-19 influenced your life in Singapore? And there are five possibilities, highly positive, some positive, no impact, some negative, and highly negative. Next slide. Now, what is interesting in this case is that uh, even in the worst years of the pandemic, uh, we actually have a good number of youth reporting being unaffected or in fact positively affected by COVID-19. This is about 40%, all right? Uh, but by the time we're moving out of the pandemic, uh, 2022, for example, this percentage actually goes up from 40% to 60%, right? So this, to me, would suggest that uh, the youth are adapting well to COVID-19 and they are, you know, moving on with their lives in terms of uh, um, uh, being less and less impacted by the pandemic. But it doesn't, uh, it, you know, eliminate the, the, the case, the observation that this is a very uneven situation and some people have been affected and some people have not been affected. Okay, next slide. Now, um, because we are dealing with panel data, we are able to use uh, different regression techniques and one of which is the fixed effects regression. Now, one, one of the benefits of a fixed effects regression is that it controls for the things that do not change over time. Okay, so what are some things that do not change over time? Things like personality, um, whether you're introvert or extrovert, that, that doesn't change over time, I would assume. And so the, the fixed effects regressions actually control for that, uh, gender, race, perhaps even abilities and so on, uh, or at least some aspect of it uh, would also be controlled by fixed effects models. All right. 
So assuming that these things do affect life satisfaction and so on, uh, the fixed effects models actually already control for these things. Right, next slide. Now, let me just share some results uh, from the youth step study. Now, the first one uh, pertains to education, right? So educational mobility. Uh, you'll find that when respondents uh, acquire more education over time, their life satisfaction goes up, right? So educational mobility, social mobility is one predictor of life satisfaction. Marriage, uh, moving from singlehood to married also increases life satisfaction. Now, employment, moving from school to unemployed or part-time employed reduces life satisfaction. By contrast, moving from school to full-time employed increases life satisfaction. Okay, so having a full-time job uh, is, is the ideal state. Okay, or, and being unemployed and having a part-time job less desirable because it is associated with lower levels of life satisfaction. Now, not surprising, the COVID years are associated with lower life satisfaction. And not surprising, uh, the earlier slides, aging, uh, getting older by a year, reduces life satisfaction. Okay, next slide. Now, here we estimate the effects of the transitions uh, before and during COVID-19 to see if there's a difference. And if there is a difference, we can conclude that the COVID environment matters. Uh, if it doesn't, then it doesn't. Okay, but let me just show you the results in terms of a, of a graph. Uh, next slide. Now, quite a number of uh, lines here, but let me try to, to explain this, uh, hopefully, in an accessible manner. Now, if you look at the graph on the left-hand side, okay, so um, on the x-axis, you have before COVID-19, and, and then on the right, of the x-axis you have during COVID-19. So on the left, before COVID-19, you see that life satisfaction doesn't change very much in response to changes in, in employment status. Right? Whether you are unemployed, part-time employed, or full-time employed, that doesn't really shift much uh, the life satisfaction outcomes. Now, during COVID-19, you see that the nodes are spreading out. Right, So the inequalities are occurring on the basis of your employment status. And it is especially detrimental on your life satisfaction to be unemployed relative to, to, to other statuses during COVID-19 as opposed to before COVID-19. Okay. Um, I, I actually have some numbers here, so let me very quickly talk about it. Now, before COVID-19, moving from student to unemployed reduces life satisfa satisfaction by about 5%. Okay. Now, during COVID-19, the same, moving from student to unemployed reduces life satisfaction by 15%. Right? So what this actually suggests is that the effects of unemployment are three times more during COVID-19 than before COVID-19. So the downward pull of unemployment on life satisfaction is actually three times more during COVID than before COVID. Okay, now we sort of see the same pattern when it comes to education. Uh, COVID-19 compounds the well-being gap between degree holders and non-degree holders. And in terms of their well-being, uh, degree holders have surged ahead of non-degree holders during COVID-19. You see the spread there occurring on the right-hand side and without a spread on the left-hand side in the second graph. Now, marriage works for all time, right? So COVID-19 or not, moving from single to married increases life satisfaction and by the same amount, right? Now, the central message is really this. 
that external shocks such as COVID-19 can in fact deepen well-being inequalities between groups. And these data suggest that to be the case, especially for employment and education. Okay, next slide. Now, this is my last slide. So I will conclude with just uh, some general points and I suppose I just want to say three things. Um, the first is this, that external shocks and crises uh, can in fact deepen mental health inequalities between groups. And the study illustrates that COVID-19 affects vulnerable groups uh, in particular. Okay, second, jobs, education, and marriage, these remain important for young adults. And hence, things like job creation, social mobility, and marriage should remain policy priorities. Third, aging decreases life satisfaction. So it's actually common for young people to feel this way because they are managing and adapting. I think uh, uh, Lin Tech talked about this. But I think uh, let me end with some good news. <laughs> All right. Um, aging does decrease life satisfaction. You can see the, the, the graph was going, the line was going down, um, you know, towards, towards the 50th year. Um, but something else increases, right? So as a person age, life satisfaction goes down, but what increases at the same time is resilience. Uh, so the youth steps data actually show this to be the case that as youth become older, their resilience actually goes up. All right. So yes, I agree that life is uh, life is tough and uh, challenging for 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 young adults. Uh, but even as the the external environment is creating more and more chaos, inside on the inside of youth, uh, they are in fact becoming stronger. So I, I I hope I can end on this optimistic note. Thank you. Thank you, Vincent for bringing us through the impact of transitions such as work, education, and family formation on youth well-being, especially against the backdrop of COVID-19. Um, I now invite Jinyao to share more about his research on youth. Jinyao, please. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. I am Jinyao, and I'm very excited to be here this morning. So I'm going to get my slides up and then test it a little bit first. All right, let me just make sure it works. There we go. So the this first panel is titled, you know, what is being young like today? And in the first word which came to my mind was Sien, you know, which for the benefit of some of our international participants here today roughly translates into a feeling of ennui or like tiredness and weariness, right? So this is why I've kind of chosen to focus on the following. So how do we help young Singaporeans feel less Sien, right? Because besides being Sien, I also think of young Singaporeans as like bees, which is why I've chosen this background image, because I believe we are a very hardworking bunch who have to straddle multiple roles and responsibilities. And, you know, also in the broader demographic context with lower birth rates and a higher life expectancy visualized through population pyramid, I like to think of us as a beehive generation. So we have obligations when we are starting a family and also obligations to our aging parents, right? So to start, I think it felt important to briefly reflect on my own positionality as it relates to today's topic since a lot of my life and work experiences have informed my views, right? I am, you know, a young Singaporean myself. I'm 32 this year. I'm not married. I was born and raised in Singapore, but I spent the last six years doing my, my PhD and now I work as an academic in the US, right? I am a social work researcher. So even though I'm based geographically in the US, 
80 to 90% of my research work is focused on social, social work research, evaluation, and practice research with Singaporean social service agencies. And in particular, a lot of my work focuses on adolescents, youth, and young adults in underserved communities. And then finally, I'm also going to draw today from a range of different perspectives. You heard from two very excellent presentations by my fellow panelists, Mr. Tan and Dr. Chua, and I'll use some of their insights. I'm also hoping to bring in um, some of my own research experiences and my ongoing work with the Majority Trust. Right, so let's get going. You know, when I think about helping young Singaporeans feel less young, I hope to highlight three themes, right? Disparities, diverse pathways, and how to do more with less. So with disparities broadly, even though you know we're really at the tail end of the pandemic, the last three to four years have highlighted that some youth have been more challenged and disadvantaged and therefore feel a little bit more sian than their counterparts. In that mind, the straightforward remedy is to identify those who are most affected and making sure that they are a lot less vulnerable in the future. So that's with disparities. With diverse pathways, I'm really referring to the notion of making it conducive for young Singaporeans to be successful and lead good lives in multiple ways beyond familiar or traditional scripts. We know, as you heard just now, there's growing social awareness and acceptance of different life pathways. And to me, the subsequent visualization and exploration are really important to see what those pathways are. And then finally, with doing more uh, with less, remember that metaphor in the beginning about young Singaporeans being like busy bees and being part of a beehive generation. Maybe because in my mind, we are so accustomed to doing so much, you know, running through life with a lot of speed and intensity. It also means to me, a habit of responding to problems and challenges with new programs and new initiatives, right? So broadly, the question I'm asking here is when we are considering community and social support for young Singaporeans, is it then possible to slow down, make space and slowly grow as individuals and communities? So let's start with the first theme, right? Disparities that the ongoing pandemic has highlighted that some few more see than the others. So from my, one of my research experiences together with a Singaporean social service agency, we've kind of worked to systematically and holistically examine some of the problems faced by Singaporeans from low-income backgrounds before the COVID-19 pandemic, how during the lockdowns and circuit breakers, those problems were exacerbated and how youth serving professionals responded. And, you know, in the earlier presentation, I thought it was really interesting that some respondents in um, the Youth Step study reported being unaffected or positively affected by COVID-19. For me and my colleagues, the question was not just whether low-income youth have been more affected by the pandemic, but how the pandemic has affected them more. And so broadly, we were considering and using a live, learn, work, play kind of framework to understand. So living is, you know, what your youth and home environment is, what were their relationships with household members, learning was the school experience, home-based learning, work was the necessity for some youth to be working part-time and working in essential roles, and play is about friend and social media engagement and access to support. So some preliminary findings that we had, right? So, um, you know, in this diagram, the roles illustrate the live, learn, work, and play problems. And then the columns, the three columns would be before the pandemic, the existing problems, the accessibility problems in the middle, and then how um, they were worsened, and then how some of the youth serving professionals um, responded, right? So for instance, let's look at the first row, right? The first row with the problems with living, a lot of these youth often lived in smaller flats. They experienced very difficult 
familiar relationships and what that meant during the pandemic, especially during the circuit breakers or lockdowns, meant having no privacy and instances of increased familial conflict. And then in the second role with learning problems, you see that many of these youth were dealing with school and disengagement and having very poor relationships, which then translated into problems during COVID-19 with inadequate technological necessities and more intense isolation, right? So in the present context of our discussion today about helping young Singaporeans feel less sian, I think it means paying greater attention to the existing problems before COVID-19 to make sure that they feel less vulnerable and disadvantaged to start with. So in addition to live and learn domains, which we talked about, that means, you know, in the third row, we've worked, how do we reduce stress from economic disadvantage and managing the necessity to work from a young age. And the fourth role we play, how do we moderate this heavy reliance on social media and addressing, as we've done so far, on psychological vulnerabilities, right? So that's the first big theme on disparities. In the second one, my second theme is really focused on diverse pathways. You know, as mentioned, um, there is growing social awareness and acceptance of diverse life pathways. You know, specifically, it was shared earlier that more youth, aged 22 to 29, hold the belief that dating, marriage, and parenthood are not essential for a fulfilling life. Then the immediate question that comes to mind then is, what does it then mean to lead and live a fulfilling life, right? And I draw really briefly from some of the earlier insights and sharing and some of the questions I have, right? So this means in terms of work, employment, and employment, what about the young Singaporeans who are not satisfied or challenged by their jobs? Or in a more somewhat different point of view, what about those who see work and labor maybe playing a lesser role in their lives or those who are not planning to upskill? And in terms of marriage and parenthood, what about those among us who maybe choose to get married later? Right. And similarly, given that we know there's this positive relationship between transition into full-time employment and marriage with higher life satisfaction, my question here would be, what about those who do not make the transitions? Now, what are the trajectories and pathways for those who do not transition into full-time employment or into marriage? Right. This next slide is a bit messy. I um, ask for your indulgence here, but let me take us through this, right? You know, as a young Singaporean, it can feel like leading a good and fulfilling life means adhering to or sticking to very familiar, well-established traditional scripts, right? So if you look at the first row with education and employment, what does what, what that mean to be graduating with a diploma or degree, then getting full-time work, going for skills upgrading, maybe switching industries, getting promoted, then retiring in your late 60s. You know, with housing, it's an alphabet soup I could recite, right? It's, BT, uh, it's HDV, BTO, wait for TOP, then MOP, maybe aspiring to own a private property, a condo, maybe in the future. And then in the third role with marriage and parenthood, it's about getting engaged, getting married, and then starting a family. And then across these domains, right, I think a reason why a lot of us as young Singaporeans feel somewhat sian is because not only do we feel like these are checkboxes we have to tick, right, you have to tick the checkboxes, get this done, get that done, but the more important thing would be we have to tick these checkboxes in a certain order at the right timing. right? So that means we have to get engaged after the diploma or degree to secure a BTO, then after that, making sure we have long-term full-time employment in a dual-income household before we feel like we are financially secure enough to get married or start a family, right? But two questions, right, to conclude this section. The first is that, what if we go out of order or not achieve certain things or items in life? Right? What if life doesn't quite go according to plan? We would love for things to happen in a particular order, but what if they don't, right? Second, what if for some of us, 
leading a good life isn't necessarily captured by these three domains within this box. Is it possible to lead a good life? And as I said in the beginning, how do we explore and visualize these different pathways? Does it have to be this traditional script that we have to stick to at the, at the same particular timings as well? And I think the third theme um, built upon these stresses related to pathways and trajectories. The third theme is to help you know, young Singaporeans feel less and is to do more with less. And to me, what does community and social support look like for a busy beehive generation? You know, from the earlier presentations, we heard Mr. Tan explain this prioritization, prior, prioritization that we have on bread and butter issues with this consistent and persistent consistent and persistent concerns over cost of living, jobs and economy, balance in life, right? You see the diagram on the right, that's Singapore's resident population pyramid in 2020. So illustrating, you know, how our population is distributed across each groups and across gender or sex. Uh, this is what I mean by a beehive generation. The fact that we have a larger proportion of working population, many of whom are youth, and we have obligations to, you know, our aging parents, and also we have obligations if we do choose to start a family or so. And what this means for young Singaporeans to me is this obligation, right? Holding obligations, having multiple roles and responsibilities. You know, very simplified, very simple when I ask friends, peers um, in our age group, what does, it, what does it look like for a day to day basis? What does it look like on a week to week basis? It's really simple. Um, the day in the life of a young Singaporean, in the weekdays, you're working, you're studying, you have dinner in the evenings, you maybe have some brief time for rest and relaxation. But honestly speaking, most of my friends in their 20s and 30s end up taking back home, uh, taking homework back, you're replying to emails, you're doing work at home. Right? So what does it mean on the weekends? In the weekends, instead of having time to take a breather, many have to spend time. If you're married, you have to visit your in-laws. If not, then you have to visit your own parents, you have to spend time with your family, you have to spend time with your friends, and then Monday comes along, the whole routine and cycle begins again, right? Against this background, my question here is, how do we make time and space to breathe, right? I don't profess to have all the solutions and I have two or three minutes left. So what I want to do instead is to pose three broad questions to maybe shape conversations we have today and in the future. So the first question I had was, maybe besides adding more programs and interventions, we're always thinking of how to improve well-being. We want to add this program, add this initiative, however well-intentioned to address these problems. Is it possible to do more with less? You know, this seems like a little philosophical, but you know, when we have friends and, and kids who are in schools, take an example of a young Singaporean in schools. In addition to the nine to one, nine to two academic pursuit, they have extracurriculars, enrichment, tuition, character and leadership workshops. If you're working it out, how do you find time to squeeze in all these additional stuff and you're really, really busy in your life, right? There's only that much time you have in a day and in a week to squeeze in all these different obligations. That's the first um, question I have. The second one will be, Seems a bit whimsical, but how do we make life less rigid and routinized and instead make time and space for seemingly frivolous pursuits, right? So this Singaporean commitment to do and achieve so much, how do we avail time and space to maybe not be doing something, right? How do we slow down and say, make time for ourselves and not be rushing to the next destination to do something next on the week, on a daily basis, on a year-to-year -year basis too? And then third and collectively, how do we help those who are squeezed by multiple roles and responsibilities, those of aging parents and young children? This seems a little bit recursive because it's related to my first theme about disparities. But you know, I'm thinking of community and 
social models where we don't feel like individuals and families have to shoulder multiple roles and responsible responsibilities by ourselves, right? That's worked well, but what does look like communal care look like? What does community care look like? How do we ease each other's burden so that we can make time and space to do things that might not be related to all these different sets of obligations, duties, and responsibilities, right? So to conclude, um, I present my three themes again, but this time and again with questions on helping Singaporeans view less here, right? So with disparities, as I said, how do we start identifying groups and remedy some of the pre-existing problems with youth? It could be living, learning, working, and playing with um, slightly older young Singaporeans. It could be a set of different problems and challenges. With diverse pathways, you know, what does it mean to lead a good life? And how do we embrace different versions of a good life that maybe in some instances might not be bound by employment, marriage, and parenthood? What do these different versions how do these versions get explored and how do they look like for um, Singaporeans? What we choose to take uh, things out of order, is that still a version of a good life for us? And then finally, we're doing more with less. How do we slow down, make space and grow as communities? Now, as Mr. Tan just shared in the first presentation, Singapore, you know, as a country, we're starting from a very good base. And that to me, grants us very valuable opportunities to consider and assess these different questions. We have this anxiety and anxiousness to get that next thing done, to go for that next thing, but maybe this is time for us to make space and time at a more matter level to think about our own lives collectively and individually and to reflect on this for the future. And with that, um, thank you very much and I look forward to the questions during the panel discussion. Thank you. Thank you, Janelle, for sharing your insights about youth roles and responsibilities and embracing diverse pathways and trajectories. Um, it's now time to open the floor to questions from the audience. So uh, let's go right into it. Uh, we have some questions that have already been surfaced. And I'd like to remind the audience that you can still put in your questions at the right-hand side panel. Um, please do so at any time during the session. Okay, so um, the first question I think um, is an important one to start with. Uh, and this is about what characterizes or categorizes youth. So this question comes from uh, Ms. Charlotte Covell uh, and the question is why are 15 to 35 year olds considered youth despite the huge age gap and difference in the phases that they're going through? So this question was originally posed to Mr. Tan Lintek uh, because uh, Lintek you talked about this definition in your opening but I thought it might be good to hear from the other panelists as well since they're coming from different perspectives. So um, maybe we'll start with Lintek. Thanks, thanks, Dylan. So I'm trying to uh, increase the age range of youth to 49 so that I can become a youth again. Uh, but anyway, more the, the reality is that actually there's no universally accepted definition for youth. So for example, if you look at the UN, uh, they will define youth as 15 to 24. Uh, if you look at some countries, they actually go up to 39. Uh, in some countries, they start earlier as 12. And I think that is really a reflection of how fluid uh, this time of life is. I think generally what we do recognize is uh, youth as the definition of the time period when you transit out of the dependence of childhood into the independence of adulthood. So once you adopt that type of definition, the, the reality is you can fall anywhere within 15 all the way up to 39, depending on how you cut it. Uh, so it is largely a statistical definition. Um, and what I think it reflects is that within this 
this uh, age range or within this stage of life that uh, youths are going through, there are actually very different transitions that they have to manage uh, from school to work, from work to marriage, from marriage to parenthood. Um, and like I say, it falls, uh, the age can fall anywhere within this range. If in countries where you get married earlier, actually your youth definition should technically move a bit further down. In countries where you get married a bit later, your 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 age should go further up. Um, so in uh, I mean, the short answer to it is really there's no uh, magic uh, number that we can ascribe to it. But I think it's important both as policymakers as well as people, uh, organizations that work with youth uh, to remember that there's this um, uh a difference across the whole when we talk about youth and to cater whatever we do to different age groups. Uh, so to say that, uh, I, I think Jingang was talking about programs. So if you say you want to pro do a program for youth, actually, which group of youth are you talking about? Are you talking about the younger youth, those who are still in school, the people who are in university, polytechnic, or are you talking about the working adults? So it's important to have that nuance in mind uh, as we talk about uh, our data, as we talk about our programs. Uh, and like I say, in reality, actually, there's no fixed answer to what is the age range of a youth uh, across the world. Yeah, thanks. Thank you, Lintek. Um, Vincent or Tinyao, do you have any comments about uh, maybe from your work, what defines youth? Could I venture? Yes, please. Uh, I, I suppose, uh, I mean, there, there's the notion of uh, uh, which age qualifies as 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 youth and and so on, but I think one thing that we can think about is uh, to contextualize it uh, bigger uh, to the generations. So, for example, growing up in the seventies, eighties, nineties would be different than growing up today, right? So, when were you young? You know, in which era were you young? I, I think that also constitutes a a very important time dimension. Uh, that that apart from the age per, age per se uh, is is actually quite seldom talked about. Thank you. Thank you. So that actually brings us really nicely to another question about the generations. So um, uh, one of the questions, and this comes from someone who's anonymous, uh, is wondering about the charts, Winston, that you showed about um, life satisfaction, I believe, uh, and looking at uh, whether there are perhaps a comparison between Gen Z, Millennials, Boomers, would that give us a clearer perspective? So the question is, um, given that each generation has its own challenges and opportunities, what are the key ones and how do they fare in comparison? So I guess your question about what is it being young in different generations? Mm. So what, what are the key challenges here? Yeah, I, I, I did think about this quite a bit and uh... You know, I, I, I tested, for example, the relationship between unemployment and life satisfaction and whether that differs by whether you are Gen Z or millennial, right? Right. And and the results show no difference. Huh? <laughs> All right. So what this actually suggests is that unemployment is bad for everybody. Whether you are from millennial generation or, or Gen Z, uh, not having a job uh, can, can pull down your life satisfaction uh, equally. Right, uh, regardless of the generation, so there there are certain conditions, right, that 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 would be detrimental or beneficial on the converse for 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 anybody from any generation, yeah. But but that's a good question. Thank you. Okay. Um. So the next question. Um. This is uh for you again, Vincent. Um. It seems that employment has a large impact on youth, and uh. 
So the question is asking, how can corporations better help youth as they step into the workforce? Uh, let, let me put it this way. Uh, you cannot be too busy to reskill. Uh, don't, don't be too caught up with the everyday fighting fires and, and so on to, to be to be unable to afford time to upgrade your skills, right? Because I, I think that, I mean, even with uh, skills future and so on, that's where it's going. So I, I think uh, in order for youth to be future ready and to be able to, to hold on to their jobs, uh, they need to constantly reinvent. So, so companies, corporations should, should, should really invest in, in uh, retraining, uh, upskilling, and also giving uh, employees the time to go for retraining, right? Uh, notwithstanding the busyness of everyday life uh, in the workplace. Mm -hmm. Okay, so since we're talking about um, what can corporations do, I'd like to open uh, this question up to um, the entire, uh, all the panelists, and just was wondering, you know, what are some implications for action um, that we can think about from the data that you've shared? Uh, so, Zinyao, you've talked a little bit about programs, so maybe you can start first. Yeah, so I mentioned programs and initiatives, but I think an interesting intervention sounds very banal sounds very basic but you know um, i'm building upon mr tan's point about how there's growing awareness and acceptance of different life pathways then the immediate question or implication to that would be what are those pathways look like right so we're very familiar and accustomed to that one pathway or that few pathways that many of our peers and counterparts are going through then the question would be how do we see or how do youth especially the younger ones when making sense of what the future looks like for themselves um, get a sense so what those different pathways might look like and paired with that there's also an assurance that it's okay if you miss a step doesn't mean you have to do it from a to b to c to z that means you qualify for a good life or a fulfilling life right i think it's broadening the notion of what it means to lead a good and fulfilling life regardless of how or what pathway you choose um that's not by any means a technical implication i mean we go further we have to go further into details of of those stages and stuff but i'm just offering a very broad intervention on trying to reimagine and visualize what those different um, trajectories might look like in our context yeah yeah uh, if i if just jump in dylan so um I just, I'm just reflecting in the past when I, I used to sit in for interviews and we talked to try to hire people. Uh, one of the questions that always came is, oh, what, what does your company have in terms of training? How do you help us uh, train, improve ourselves? Uh, so that was a very common question in the past. Uh, in recent years, one of the questions that I get as, as someone interviewing is, uh, what uh, support systems does your, your company have in place for mental well-being? So I say that um, to... to, to to highlight that as uh, youth and their aspirations, their values, their priorities change. Uh, corporates, uh, which is a place where they spend a good eight to 10 hours of their time every day, uh, will have a role to play uh, in addressing some of these concerns. And it's important both from a business perspective, because you want to hire the best talent, you want to support your employees well, as well as from a youth perspective, to ensure that as they move into a workplace, they feel supported, they feel that some of the concerns that they have are addressed. So I think there are two M's that are very important uh, for corporates to think about. The first one is what I mentioned, mental well-being. Uh, how do you help to support youth in terms of mental well-being? I think this is now becoming a hygiene factor for many youth as they look for a job. So it will be a competitive advantage for corporates if they do have a strong support mechanism for, for uh, mental well-being uh, in terms of the, the kind of priority that youth place on that. 
Uh, the second M that is becoming increasingly important, and, and this is something that we're trying to help support as well, is mentoring. Uh, so you will hear from us a lot of the challenges. We, we spoke about a lot about the transitions that youth have to go through. And the reality is that um, it is difficult to go through this uh, as a youth. Uh, what you have is a, a lot of uncertainty. You have no good sense of the future, even if we look at ourselves as we are growing up. Uh, but we have always, many of us have benefited from having that mentoring figure, that person in your life that has gone through all this and is able to advise you, yeah, it's okay. It's okay to feel yeah, that you are lost now because after a while, things will work out, you will be able to go through or share his own experience about it. So how do you have this type of structures in place within corporates? Uh, again, where you spend a lot of their time uh, in order to be able to guide them through uh, their transitions. So uh, I, I say this because uh, in school, uh, youth benefit from many of this, uh, which the schools have put in place. But very often, their reflection is when they move into the workplace, uh, it feels that the support structures are not so strong uh, and understandably so because they are older and because the, the nature of the environment is quite different. Uh, but I think for corporates, it's worthwhile to think about some of this uh, in reflection of the priorities and the importance that our youth place on that. Thanks. Thank you very much. So I, uh, I'm cognizant that you know, during the discussions, we're talking a lot about this idea of transitions. And this is something that's come up um, in different ways through all your speeches. So I'm just wondering, um, maybe I pose a question to Vincent here, um, since you shared that um, some transitions were particularly challenging for youth uh, during the COVID-19 um, pandemic. So um, for example, uh, the transition from being students to unemployment, unemployed, sorry, uh, goes uh, is three times worse during COVID nineteen. So perhaps we can uh, just have a uh, just a, a, a conversation about why this might be. Uh, what are the reasons why um, it's particularly challenging? Um, I, I, I'll just say in one word: uh, precarity. Mm. Right when the COVID nineteen environment. Okay, you may lose your job. Uh, so on. Uh, before COVID or, or when COVID isn't around, you may say, okay, I, I think I still have a chance because there may be opportunities out there, right? But if it happens during COVID-19, then the environment is very different, there's precarity and there's the heightened sense that uh, I may not so easily be able to switch jobs or find a new one, right? So I think the, the COVID-19 environment uh, introduces an entirely new layer of insecurity uh, to what was, what perhaps is already a difficult uh, time, right? Uh, not just for Singapore, but for the world uh, in terms of uh, uh, trade wars and, and so on. That, 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 that was the case uh, before 2020. Yeah, so I think COVID-19 added to it and, and compounded it still, still further. Thank you. Tinyao, uh, you were talking about disparities um, and uh, the pandemic, you know, being a very different experience for certain segments of our population. Would you like to just add on to that? Yeah, um, you know, um, you know, Dr. Chua Vincent talked about, you know, precarity, insecurity. It would be remiss of me and us to not also point out that this is the, the broader macro environment has been challenging for youth. We talked about just COVID, right? But if you are in the 30s and my age, you also would have lived through the global financial crisis. You gone through COVID. Um, and, you know, many of us also have anxieties over climate change, geopolitics, trade war was mentioned. So it's a lot of 
things to deal with when you're considering these transitions also, right? And these might seem very far away, but that has direct implications for when you're trying to make a transition from school to work, when you're looking for work, when um, there are there's a threat of, of automation and so on and so forth. That, that's going to increase and heighten anxieties across these different transitions as well. So I agree that you know it's especially challenging. Companies and corporations can do a fair amount. So, but I think it's also important to recognize that a lot of these can feel like it's out of our control. And yet we bear the brunt of a lot of these that are cascading down, right? And there's a limit to which you know, earlier generations might be able to give insights sometimes because it wasn't as unstable or as uncertain as it was during this time as well. So having a, a notion of what those micro environment factors can look like can also play a role too. Yeah. Thank you very much. So Lintek, um, in your slides, you talked about uh, the fact that mental well-being is also not back to um, pre-pandemic levels and that certain things such as burnout and work-life balance seems to be a key feature in the stresses for each um, each uh, specific age group that you looked at. So um, do you have any further thoughts about why this is the case? No, thank, thanks for the question, Dilam. And I think it's important uh, to also think about uh, how uh, when you talk about mental well-being for youth, uh, how as an ecosystem, and I mean the youth himself, the people around them, uh, how they are able to uh, address some of these challenges that they face, as well as some of the difficulties that may arise out of mental, uh, mental well-being type of issues. Uh, I think from the work that we have done on mental well-being, the biggest challenge today still continues to be stigma. So stigma is really still the one difficulty that we have and that we are trying to overcome. Uh, if you think of it today, if you fall sick, uh, you have a flu, you go and see a doctor, your friend is not going to say, hey, this guy is really, is what, 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 he, had, he go and see a doctor, right? It's totally normal. Um, but we think that there's still a strong sense of stigma associated with mental well-being. Uh, it has improved over the years. And the, I mean, the positive side is also for youth. Yes, uh, youth generally have less stigma towards uh, discussions on mental well-being uh, vis-a-vis other generations. Uh, but I think it's important to be able to continue to open up that space uh, because for mental well-being issues, actually, the starting conversation, the first intervention is uh, much more important uh, than subsequent type of interventions because uh, it can help to address or to worsen the situation. Uh, so one of the things that we're really trying to do is to how to help build up a community of peer supporters uh, in schools, in the workplaces, as well as in the community to be able to help uh, youth to be able to address uh, some of the mental issues, uh, mental well-being issues that they might face. And we believe that this is the most powerful approach because actually when you look at it, if you face a difficulty, you feel sad suddenly, you feel depressed suddenly, um, you, you have two options, right? One is you talk, you keep it within yourself. Uh, secondly is you probably talk to uh, someone who is close to you. Uh, so to be able to have the people around you be able to provide that line of defense, that support is very important, uh, which is why the ability to have uh, such meaningful conversations and for the person that he's speaking to not to worsen the situation, I think to be trained in that type of dialogue, that type of um, conversations is very important. So we are trying to help to build up this community of peer supporters uh, in different uh, communities, like say in schools, in workplaces. Um, and I think if we have that first line of defense, it can really help uh, to make a very big impact without having to go into the more clinical type of uh, or medical type of intervention subsequently. So I think that's what we are putting a lot of focus on. And uh, as part of that, we are also helping youth to build up their own resilience. I think uh, Vincent mentioned about uh, resilience, and I, I was very heartened to hear you sharing that actually we do see youth becoming more resilient uh, over time. And, and when you look at it and you reflect on, upon it, perhaps that is 
the way life has always been, that you face a lot of challenges, you start to feel depressed, uh, but actually you build up your resilience and after that, you are better able to cope and that's when life satisfaction actually starts to improve and you actually start to see some uptake in that. Uh, so so, so that's, uh, in a nutshell, is what we're trying to do uh, in the mental well-being space. Can I um, yes, um, intervene a little bit? I, I completely agree. And I think the government has done a tremendous job in shifting the needle from awareness to action. I do think to extend that I on the point about disparities, right? I, I guess a key question that comes to my mind would be why were why would a particular group of youth or young Singaporeans feel anxious, depressed, and not satisfied with life in the first place? So that to me is also a necessity. You think more a little bit more upstream, right? So in addition to the great things you have mentioned in terms of intervention in schools, peer support, you know, if you broadly use the live, learn, work, play domain, if a youth was living in a in a small flat, has had challenges in schools, has had to work part-time, has had to um, been disengaged from peers in the first place, then there are issues in terms of how do we address some of these challenges even before we talk about the treatment and intervention part of it. So I thought that was an that was a important extension. So in addition to what we're doing and trying to do, I think going even more upstream, at least from a social work and social worker lens, uh, would be a really important one too. Yeah. If, Could I add if, to yeah, that? Oh, sorry. Okay. Yes, Vincent, please. please go ahead. Uh, okay. Uh, I'll make it quick. Uh, I, I was very... Um, so so when I saw uh, Lintek, you were sharing about burnout, uh, you know, being a very consistent theme, uh, you know, I... I, I I mean, I suppose there are two questions, right? The, the first is uh, why the burnout? And the second question is why the burnout at such a young age? Um, and burnout, I, I think we understand burnout to, you know, it doesn't appear out of nowhere, right? It, it, it It's accumulative, right? So I, I do wonder whether the burnout amongst young people could also be due to um, maybe the over-programming of young people starting from the earliest days in school and the sort of hyper-competition that, that youth are exposed to in the schools and so on. Um, uh, of course, I'm not saying that, that schools are bad, right? But uh, there could be that... that, that uh, and, and ultimately, it sort, of, uh, it, it sort of hones in on a very singular definition of success that, that I think sort of seems to permeate society. And Jin Yao talked about uh, diversity of uh, pathways and tracks. But I think the the irony is, is is precisely this that the enemy of the enemy of diversity is actually hierarchy because as long as you continue to, to always be ranking things, uh, there there can can never be a celebration of all tracks and giving all tracks equal worth because you're you, because you are ranking things right. So so I I think um we we need to celebrate that diversity. And of course, to attenuate the hierarchies that we have built over time, uh, even as a society. Now, things like wage gap and so on, of course, right? We we need those things, and of course, different jobs have different skill levels and so on. But uh, the the disparities need not be so big, right? So I'm not saying that we shouldn't have inequality, uh, but but uh, where possible, we should try to attenuate those inequalities, uh, and 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 to and to celebrate uh, diversities. Uh, so, so sort of moving away from um, hyper competition to a more community orientation and a focus on contributions as opposed to winning out the competition and being the first, uh, uh, you know, uh, as opposed to second and so on, right? So, so we need to think uh, less in terms of competition, perhaps, uh, but and more in terms of contribution. 
Um, and, and I think when, when, when youth are volunteering and so on, they, they catch a glimpse of that second mountain, right? And, and they begin to feel good about it. So in the early years, the, the youth are climbing the first mountain. So that's why they're miserable, because it's all about competition, inequality, right? Making a name for oneself, uh, trying to set things up, right? So the first mountain, that, so that's why the, the line is going down. Okay, but after 50, they got on the second mountain and they start to contribute uh, in, in ways that are not so much tied to their rank or their hierarchies. And then uh, they, 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 they feel much better after that. So being Xian is a phase of life uh, in the earlier half, right? But uh, once you cross that, that middle point, uh, then, then uh, you, you get to that second mountain. You have perhaps uh, established a certain foundation. Perhaps you feel less Xian after that. Yeah, if I, if I just jump in, and I think Jing Yao and Vincent highlighted uh, an important point. And I fundamentally, it's about your definition of success, right? What does success mean? Uh, and unfortunately, this is one of those areas where if I could, as government, I will wave a wand and change the definition of success. Um, but the definition of success does not come from government alone. Nah. This is one of those areas where you feel different stressors uh, because of the different people you interact with, including your parents, uh, including the people around you, your family around you, right? So interestingly, one of the most stressful periods uh, throughout the year is Chinese New Year, which is coming up soon. And I, uh, when we ask youth that, uh, that is consistently one of the, the data points we get. And I half suspect it's because they will get asked, what are your results? Uh, are you getting married soon? Are you going to have children soon? If you have one child, are you going to have five more, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so I think it's important to have these conversations around definitions of success uh, because that determines how our youth will look at themselves and how the youth will look at the people around them, whether as, as competition, whether as people that they can support or they can enable. Uh, and that conversation is very crucial. Uh, yeah. The difficulty is how you have that conversation at different levels. When they're talking to someone from a secondary school, um, they need to hear from their parent what the definition of success is. Again, reflecting when I was in second sec two, I, I nearly got retained. And at that time, it was like the end of the world type of thing. But actually, if today you ask me, oh, would you want to take a one-year sabbatical and do nothing? My answer is, yeah, of course I would. Um, so it's really how you define the time that you spend and, and whether that is something that is acceptable to the people that uh, are around you and the society, what society views. And is I think it's important to have that type of conversation. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, at least from a policymaker's perspective, that is one of the things that we cannot change. Uh, and it is about how, as a whole, corporates, um, parents, society, schools, etc., have that conversation around that definition of success. And understand also that there are trade-offs and the, the, the youth himself will have to understand whether to make that trade-off uh, in terms of success as well. I think that's, those are, this to me, is one of the important conversations that we need to have. Um, and need to be, and that will help our youth be able to better navigate maybe the mountains that they climb, uh, so that they don't feel so sienna. Thank you. So um, this next question uh, sort of relates to this question about what can we um, uh, suggestions for policymakers, and this is taking a leaf. Uh, from Dr. Kwan's presentation, and this question comes from Kalpana. Um, what suggestions do all the panelists have for policymakers as you think about embracing different versions of a good life for Singaporeans and the idea um, and ideas for how we as a society may encourage uh, people to do less to create more? So any uh, implications for suggestions for policy change? 
Yeah. So maybe I can go first and then kind of draw upon one of my favorite anecdotes when we talk about um, competition, hierarchy, ranking. I, I think Dr. Chua's point was excellent. And I think a lot about how I express to my friends and peers and younger ones to say a lot of my process has been to some extent unlearning what was taught in schools. Like I'm totally appreciative of my education, my secondary school. It's shaped me the way I am. And the, a big part of my success today has, can be attributed to school. But one of the anecdotes I have was when I first took an exam or test in, in JC, one of the things that the civic student did was he was giving out test papers. He was giving out one by one. Right. And then it turns out he was giving it out in um, reverse order or descending order. Right. He was giving out based on what we were scoring. And so a lot of it was this notion of trying to foster us to do better, to compete with one another. But a lot of my unlearning has to be how do I learn to lead a good life on my own terms without having to benchmark or compare against someone else? And it's not easy. Um, it's not easy to unlearn years and decades of trying to compete and fight and trying to be better than someone else. And being in academia doesn't help, but I think a, a big part of it from individuals would be also having these conversations amongst themselves. Um, how do we have conversations about what it means to have a good life? How, how do we not give ourselves those subtle pressures of uh, what it means to be successful? And I see this in kind of micro doses, right? I see parents trying to resist sending um, their children to enrichment, to tuition. I see friends who are thinking about how do I not give my children the same pressure that maybe they were subject to. Um, so as much as we can think about interventions from the state, which I, you know, maybe am not in a position to give, I think on an interpersonal, person-to-person -person level, a lot of these conversations can also shape the way we approach um, life and also the way we pass on certain values and principles to um, children if we do start a family. Yeah, so that would be one of those interventions. Could I add? Um, yeah, to, to add to Jinya, I, I, I firmly agree. Um, I, I think the sociological insight is that the cells that we embody are in fact socially constructed uh, by people outside, right? So you are looking at how people are reacting and you are conforming your own decisions and pressing yourself into the mold of what you think others would expect of you and would therefore approve of, of, of you to do, right? Um, so I, I wish we could move away from that. I, I you know, my, my wish for, for young people is that we could, um, we, we, we could actually be uh, willing to, to do what we are gifted to do, right? As opposed to conforming to what we think others would want us to do and therefore to, to do that in order to gain some kind of uh, social approval and so on, right? So to, to, to me, a successful person uh, would be a person that uh, does what he is gifted to do, right? And and to the extent that people are able to find what that is, uh, then then I, I think I, I would venture to say that uh, perhaps uh, burnout rates would be less. Yeah. So um, yeah, so th that's that's my that's my definition of success. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, we we need to deconstruct what others have put on us in order to, uh, in in order to come fully to ourselves, if I can put it that way, um, and and that would be very good for young people. Yeah. So. This is the most difficult question I've had uh, because 
it's an oxymoron, right? So as a policymaker, if I know it and I've not done it, then something is wrong. Uh, but I think that uh, what I would say is that uh, the conversation for the youth to understand the trade-offs is crucial. Uh, so for example, uh, I really like the slide that Jingyao showed about what might be the typical mindset of success, right? So if you buy a HDB flat, then you want to upgrade to a condominium, et cetera, et cetera, type of uh, lifestyle. And I just imagine that if you can sit down with every youth, your 1 million youth, and have that conversation with every single one of them and tell them that, look, this is the archetypical uh, Singaporean dream type of picture. But actually, you can have different ways of going and reaching uh, what you define or what you accept as success in life. Um, and as part of the conversation, help them to appreciate that uh, whatever path you choose, there's going to be upside and there's going to be downside. There's going to be trade-offs, there are going to be consequences. Um, and help them think through that process uh, to understand that life is not linear. Life is uh, can go through different pathways. Um, but taking a different pathway would mean uh, a certain trade-off. So for example, if you want to pursue your dream, you want to go overseas and be a missionary, for example, for, for 10 years, uh, it probably means that you are not likely uh, going to be able to afford a condominium, for example. Uh, and the question to the youth is, are you willing to accept that trade-off? Uh, if you are not, that's fine. Then what do you need to do to be able to help you achieve what your priority in life is? So I think that type of conversation is very, very important because it helps the youth to be able to crystallize what their priorities are, what they want to achieve in life. And from there, to be able to gear up their life towards that. Um, but you can imagine with 1 million youth, it's difficult to do that, uh, which is why things like mentoring always come in to be able to provide that figure to run through that. But I think for youth, again, we I don't want to romanticize the time of youth where uh, every youth has great clarity of mind and I want to change the world, I want to do that. Uh, for many of us, I mean, if I reflect my own throwing back, I never knew what I wanted to do. I mean, I just go along with the flow and sometimes that's okay. Uh, but to have that type of conversation, I think it's important. Uh, and I think that's where you will open the doors to be able to redefine success and to help them use appreciate that actually it's okay sometimes not to be okay it's okay to take a longer step it's okay to take a longer path um, and and uh, and and what it means in that sense lah. So I think a lot of the intervention is best done at the individual level again because if you think fifteen to thirty five very broad range even within say fifteen you also have a very broad range and I think that's what Tsingya was alluding to that you have people from low income families you have people who are single families they are very different type of demographics to be able to have that type of guidance I think is very crucial uh, especially at the formative stage of a youth's life. Uh, could I just add to that uh, just very quickly uh, taking a leave of Michelle Lamont. Um, you know, sociologists uh, sort of, um, she, she also writes about notions of success and so on. And she sort of uses this one word, uh, the notions of worth. Uh, what, what, what is worth might be different between societies, right? Um, I, I think uh, we, we have to rethink notions of worth, uh, perhaps away from just a singular definition like productivity. I'm not saying it's not important. Of course it is, but that cannot be the only benchmark for determining the worth of a person, right? So I, I think one of the, the the dangers of a sort of neoliberal uh, sort of era that, 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 that we are in is that we tend to, to tie the worth of a human being to uh, what he has done or, or, or how productive he is or how much he earns or how wealthy he is. Right. So I think as, as a sort of a, a social compact sort of question uh, would then be to interrogate that notion of worth 
and to think about worth not in terms of what you do or how much you earn, but in terms of your of your being, right? Uh, your your humanity. Are you a decent person? Do you treat others well? Are you contributing to making people's lives better? And of course, you can do it through being productive. I'm not saying I'm not trying to demonize productivity. Definitely not, right? I'm just saying that notions of worth uh, cannot be solely tied to singular definitions such as uh, especially of the material sort, right? That uh, I, I think perhaps we have uh, perhaps uh, leaned towards, right? So the notion of, I know the national conversation is moving towards notions of contribution away from, from uh, you know, uh, uh, the five Cs and so on. I, I think it's a very productive step. Thank you very much. Uh, we have now come to the end of our time this morning. I'd like to thank everyone here, our panelists, Mr. Tan Lin Tech, Associate Professor Winston Chua, Assistant Professor Quan Jin Yao, and our online audience for contributing to the discussion today. The video of today's session will be available on the online platform for about two weeks' time. And the next session, panel two, the Terran Head, starts at 11.30 a.m. We look forward to reconvening later. Thank you very much. Thank you.